All right, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to, to study your word uh, together. Thank you for the truth that you're in control, that you're, you're sovereign, such a comfort in our lives, that you are committed to unconditional love. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve your mercy, but we surely do enjoy it. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, when you're watching a, a sporting event, you can really see people's talents on display. Right now, the Celtics are, are playing the Warriors in the NBA Finals, and those players are just amazing in their abilities, and their talents are on uh, display. The Avalanche are doing really well. They're favored to get to the Stanley Cup, maybe win. There's a lot of talent there that's on display. I think I've watched like two hockey games in my life, so I wouldn't know, but from what I read, they're, they're doing pretty well. But when we read this chapter, we see God's mercy on display in what may appear to be an unusual way where God shows his election. He, he shows his choosing of the nation of Israel, his choosing of Isaac and, and Jacob by his, his grace. And there's one of two ways you're going to take Romans 9. is you're either going to be offended that God chooses or you're going to be encouraged that God chooses. You're going to be comforted that God chooses. It's really important to see where Romans 9, 10, and 11 fits in the flow of the book of Romans. If you remember last week, we ended on this crescendo that nothing can separate us from God's love. Then we go into chapter 9, where for three chapters, Paul dives into the nation of Israel. And it seems like he's getting off track, but he's proving his point. He's showing us, he's illustrating through the nation of Israel that God is committed to his love towards us, that nothing can separate us from God's love. This is really important for several reasons because there's many today that think that God has forsaken the nation of Israel. You can't adopt that position after reading Romans 9, 10, and 11. Romans 9, God's past dealings with Israel. Romans 10, God's present dealing with Israel. Romans 11, God's future dealing with Israel. But what does that say about God if God abandons the nation of Israel? What does that say about him? So he's proving to us his unconditional love in his faithfulness to Israel, even in light of their unfaithfulness. So let's begin in verse 1 of Romans 9. I tell the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience also bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh. Paul shares with us his burden for the nation of Israel as he introduces the topic of Israel. And quite a statement here in verse 3 that he says that he himself would be accursed from Christ, separated from Christ for the nation of Israel to be saved. I don't know if I could say that in honesty and in, in integrity, that I'd be willing to go to hell so that someone could be saved and know Christ as their savior. How does Paul get to this point where he has such a burden, especially for those that had persecuted him? The Jews, they came after him time and time again, threw him in prison, stoned him, and yet Paul longs for them to come to know Christ as their Savior. I think there's only one way, and that's through prayer. Through spending time in prayer, 
asking that God would save them, asking that God would rescue them from darkness, rescue them from eternal damnation. We're going to spend more time on this on on Wednesday night as we'll be going in in depth, but God developing in us a heart for the lost, a, a burden for the lost. Unfortunately, we can live our Christian life where we're not really thinking about the lost. We're not really burdened for the lost. We're not sharing the gospel uh, with the lost. And here Paul's saying, man, I, I love the nation of Israel so much that I would be accursed from Christ. In verse, verse 4, who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises? Paul goes over the blessings that God had given to the nation of Israel, to whom pertain the adoption. God allowed them to be the children of God. They received the glory of God. In the Hebrew, the word glory is kabod, and it speaks of weight and substance. Ultimately, what we long for is the glory of God. There's something that happens to our souls when we behold the glory of God. There's a substance there that cannot be replaced in any other fashion of life. And God's glory was given and revealed to the the children of Israel with a cloud that covered them by day as they traveled through the wilderness, with a pillar of fire by night. Pretty cool, a cloud to guide you through the wilderness, literally walking in the shade, a pillar of fire to comfort you at night. When the temple and the tabernacle were built, God's glory came and inhabited the tabernacle, and the temple. The kabod, the glory of God. The glory of God was was given uh, to them. Also, the giving of the law. There wasn't another group of people, another nation that were given the law, and God gave the law to the children of Israel, to Moses. The service of God specifically speaks to the temple, the tabernacle. God gave that whole system to the children of Israel And the promises, there's promises in scripture that are specific to the nation of Israel. But what takes the cake, what's the top of the list is verse 5, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came who is over all and eternally blessed God. Amen. Christ came for the nation of Israel. You're saying, well, what about Gentiles? What about us? Yes, Gentiles as well. But God came in human flesh according to the flesh. Humanity. Christ came so that the nation of Israel could be saved and Gentiles could be saved as well. Then from verse 6 to verse 18, we really get an in-depth look of God's choosing. That God took Isaac over Ishmael. Abraham's two sons, he chose Isaac. Then God chose Jacob over Esau, Isaac's two sons. And then God chose to harden Pharaoh's heart. Verse 6, But it is not that the word of God had no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Some may look at Israel's history and go, well, did God's word have no effect? Was the problem with God's word? And the answer is no. God's word did have effect. It did have impact in their hearts and lives. And then Paul points out, not all that are from Israel are of Israel. Now this has two meanings. And the first, it does refer to Jacob, who became Israel. 
Jacob means heel catcher. That's what his name literally means. He's a twin. When Jacob and Esau were born, Jacob was trying to grab his brother's heel because apparently he wanted to be born first. Esau means hairy. Must have been a very hairy baby. Like, what should we call this one? How about Harry? What do we call this other one? Well, he's grabbing his brother's heel. He's, he's the heel catcher. And throughout Jacob's life, he struggled with taking things into his own hands, trying to manipulate and make things happen. Later in his life, God came and wrestled with him, knocked his hip out of, of socket. God changed his name to Israel, which means conquered by God or governed by God. And then, of course, Israel or Jacob had the twin boys, had Jacob and Esau, but who God chose was Jacob, not Esau, and Esau's descendants. Also, this speaks of the fact that just because someone is ethnically from Israel doesn't make them the child of God. They've got to know Christ as their Savior. Jesus is the way for salvation for the Jew and the Gentile. Verse 7 nor are all children because they are seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. Abraham had Ishmael, but he also had Isaac, and it was God chose Isaac. God promised that the child would come through his relationship with Sarah, and that's what we see in these next few verses. That is, those who are the children of the flesh these are not children of God, but the children of promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Throughout Romans chapter 9, Paul is very busy quoting the Old Testament. And he quotes from, from Genesis here. So Abraham's story is interesting because God promised that he and Sarah would have children and their descendants would be like the stars in the sky. Quite, quite a promise. Yet, they continued to be barren. <laughs> they continued to not be able to have kids. Lord, what are you doing? They get to a place of frustration and struggle and unbelief. And Sarah says, how about you just go ahead and have a relationship with Hagar, my handmaiden. Abraham agrees to it. And Ishmael was born. Now, Ishmael is not the promised child. It's not the one that God had chosen. God had chosen to give a child to Sarah. Time goes on, some more time goes on, and eventually God is faithful to his promise. Even though Abraham had been disobedient and gives a child to Sarah named Isaac, and it's through Isaac that God births the nation of Israel. So God chooses Isaac. In verse 11, or verse 10, and not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac. So Isaac's the chosen of Abraham's descendants, his wife Rebekah. She has twins, and she is told by God that the older shall serve the younger, in verse 11 and 12. For the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. Before Jacob could do any works, before Esau could do any works, 
God speaks to Rebecca and says, the older is going to serve the younger. This is not the way things worked at this time. It was the older that had the birthright. But Esau would eventually sell his birthright for some split pea soup, for bean soup that apparently Jacob made really well. Jacob was a man of the kitchen. Esau was a man of the field. He gets home from hunting. He's super hungry. And he sells his birthright for a bowl of beans. Shows how much he valued his birthright. But God called it. And, And the point here that's so comforting from verse 11 and 12 is God says, I did this before they were born to prove that my choosing of Jacob was based on grace. Not according to Jacob's works. And why this is so comforting for us is God has chosen to give us his unconditional love, not based on our works, but based on his election and his choosing that he has decided to love us and he's not going to change his mind. Isn't that comforting? It's amazingly comforting. In verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Quoting Malachi chapter 1 verses 2 and 3. So this is where people get really offended because it's God chose Jacob and it's recorded that he hated Esau. Well, a couple things to consider is this word hated means love less in light of a higher choice, okay? So in one sense, I love Amber and I hate all other women, okay? That I got your attention, right? But do, do I really hate women? No, I hope you didn't hear that. But compared to the higher choice of being committed to my wife, yes, I love my wife. That, that's the higher choice. I'm loyal to her. So, so please make sure you heard all of that, right? <laughs> Someone's going to take a sound bite, and then there goes my opportunity to pastor. So it's not this ill will that God has towards Esau or this destruction of Esau. In fact, God blessed Esau, blessed his his descendants. But compared to his love to Jacob, yes, there is special favor that's given to Jacob because God chose that. Now, once again, we can either get really offended or we can be blown away that God would choose Jacob. It's not so surprising that God would make this statement towards Esau. If you study Esau's life, God made the right choice with Esau. But what is really surprising is that God would love Jacob. Because Jacob as well had his own struggles, this man of manipulation. He tricked his own dad for his dad to give him the blessing. He, he put on some fur from an animal because his brother was so hairy. Remember, hairy means Esau. And he was always in this life of deception, but yet God chose to to love Jacob. And what's so amazing is God chose to love me, and God chose to love you. Why would God choose to love us? That's amazing. That that is mind-blowing to us. In verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. Something we all have to wrestle with. If God chooses, is it unrighteous for God to choose? And Paul's answer is, certainly not. God has the position, he has the authority, he has the holiness, he has all of the information. And all of these choices that that he made, did, did he make the wrong choice? 
Did he make the wrong choice with Isaac? Did he make the wrong choice with Jacob? Did he make the wrong choice with Pharaoh? No, he, he made the right choice. And he has the authority to be able uh, to choose. In verse 15, for he says to Moses, I have mercy on whomever I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Exodus 33. God says, I'm going to choose to be gracious to who I want to be gracious to. I'm going to choose to be merciful to whom I desire to be merciful to. He's not obligated or required to show mercy, but he chooses as he sees fit to give out mercy and compassion. And here's the comfort in verse 16. So then it's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. So if God chooses to show mercy independent of us, then he receives all the glory. And salvation is not because we worked so hard or we willed it. I I willed this. I, I worked for it. I ran so hard and so God chose to love me. No, if we're honest, We're wretched sinners. We're broken. We're we're flawed. And yet God chose to love us and he saved us and he saved us by his work that we receive by grace through faith. So, So that's the comfort. His love for the nation of Israel wasn't because they deserved it or they worked hard, but God was merciful. Here's the next example of God's choosing in verse 17. But scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Quoting out of Exodus. God says that he's raised up Pharaoh to show his power. Here, Pharaoh may be the most powerful man in the land. And when you study Exodus, there's several times where Pharaoh chooses to harden his heart towards God. God then confirms Pharaoh's choice and also hardens Pharaoh's heart. There's several times where it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. There comes a point in a person's life where when they choose to reject Christ, I don't know when that point is, that God chooses to confirm that decision and hardens their heart. And will actually even use that hard heart to show his glory. God humbled Pharaoh through the plagues that he placed upon Egypt, showing that he was more powerful than Pharaoh, more powerful than all of these false gods. The choice that God made with Pharaoh was to confirm this decision that Pharaoh had made. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and of whom he wills, he hardens. So God has mercy on Jacob. He has mercy on the nation of Israel, but he hardened Pharaoh's heart. In verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? This is interesting. I want you to think about this with me. Because then some would say, well, how can God hold someone accountable for sin or hold them accountable for hardening their heart if God chooses and there is election? The reason that God can hold Pharaoh accountable for his decision and hold all of us accountable for our decision is because he also gives us free will. And this is what blows our minds. God chooses and he elects, but he also gives us 
the opportunity to choose. What Paul is saying here is God's sovereignty and God's election doesn't release somebody of their responsibility to accept or reject God. If, if that were be the case, then they could just look at God and say, well, God, you made this choice, so I'm not responsible. So then this gets into a, a deeper understanding of the relationship that the potter has with the clay. In verse 20, but indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Let's sit on that one for a while. Because <laughs> as you read Romans 9, you might get to a place where you've got some complaints against God. Or you've got some questions uh, against God. And I don't think that it's wrong to bring our questions before God. I think it's healthy. I think it's really good. And we see this in, in Job's relationship. Job went through some hard things, and he had some hard questions for God. And at the end of the book of, of Job, God answers those questions with statements like, hey, Job, where were you when I created the foundations of the world? Job, you, you have your perspective, and you have your, your complaints, but this is who I am. I created the world. And it's amazing if you spend time reading the end of the book of Job, God, God's power. And these verses are intended to bring us to this place of, of surrender and trust. Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? I have a friend that I'm in Bible study with on Friday mornings, my, my men's group, and he works for Rock Shock here in town uh, making suspension systems for mountain biking. Probably the coolest job, right? Gets to go out mountain biking and testing this equipment. Now, now, what if Tim makes one of these designs with his coworkers, and, and the shock starts speaking to him and saying, I, I don't really like that you designed me this way. I really wanted to be on a motorcycle instead of on a mountain bike. Or I've heard about these e-bikes, and those sound really cool. But I'm stuck on a traditional bike. Or, that, that, that wouldn't happen, Right? doesn't have the power or, or the ability to do this. And this is a quote from Isaiah 49 and Isaiah 29, Isaiah 45 and Isaiah 29. Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another to dishonor? Of course the potter has power over the clay. And I think this gets to the heart of the issue when it comes to us wrestling with God's sovereignty is to recognize that I'm not in control. I'm the clay. Now, what if the clay did have authority? Probably wouldn't turn out too good. What if we had authority? What if we got to, to call the shots? Aren't you glad that humanity's not in charge and God's in charge? That there is a, a potter and we're the clay and he gets to decide what he wants to form for honor or for dishonor. Now, we can make it a lot easier on ourselves if we're willing pliable clay in his hands. Amen? Amen. Say, God, I, I want to surrender to what you're making. And I trust the hands of the potter that you love me and, and you're making something good. If you're like me, sometimes I resist. The hands of the potter is on my life, and I'm like, I don't know if I like that. That's not how I saw things going. 
I'm not really sure if I'm ready to let go of this. I've actually gotten comfortable in this, in this sin and found some identity to, to be there. And then there's other times where it's like, God, I'm broken. I'm, I'm a lump of clay. I'm surprised that you love me. And I want to be surrendered to you. I want to, I want to submit to you and allow you to make what you want to make. In verse 22, what if God, wanting to show his wrath, to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessel of wrath prepared for destruction? Pharaoh would be the example of that. God suffered long with Pharaoh for the purpose of displaying his power. What if God wanted to do that? Verse 23, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Even so, whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So God preparing vessels to receive mercy, to display his mercy, to be trophies of his grace. And the nation of Israel is that. When you read the Old Testament, it's not a pretty history for Israel, even how the nation of Israel started in the book of Genesis, going into the time of the judges and then the kings, great rebellion against God to the time of Christ, the Jewish leaders crucifying Christ, the people crying out to to crucify Christ. You go to Israel today and they're largely atheists, but God has chosen to continue to be faithful to Israel to display his mercy, to display his grace. We're living in a modern-day miracle that the nation of Israel became a nation again in May of 1948. There's no other people group that have been dispelled from their land for such a long period of time that held on to their language, their culture, and came back into their land. But God promised that that would happen. Israel has so many enemies that want to see them destroyed, but somehow Israel continues to prosper. Why? Because God is putting on display his mercy and his his grace. God tells us that he'll bless those who bless Israel, not because Israel's perfect, but because by his grace they're his chosen people. In verse 25, And he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people and her beloved who are not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. This is quoting Hosea chapter one and chapter two. Hosea is a really interesting book. God calls Hosea to marry a harlot. And this harlot keeps going out and being unfaithful And God calls Hosea to go find her, win her back. It's a display of unconditional love. And God is saying this is the love that he has for the nation of Israel. And in the midst of that context is this promise, while God is being faithful to Israel, he's also going to call Gentiles to himself. Gentiles being non-Jewish people. Those who were not his beloved will be his beloved. Those who are not his people will be his people, and they shall be sons of the living God. So Israel is the object of God's mercy, but also so are you and I. We're trophies of God's mercy. We're trophies of God's grace. We don't deserve it. In verse 27, 
Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. Throughout all of Israel's history, there has been a remnant, a group of Jews that have known and loved and stayed true to the Lord. Elijah stood faithful for the Lord in time of great darkness. Daniel, Jeremiah, standing faithful to the things of God. Paul, being a Jew who was saved. In our time, Jews for Jesus, a ministry for Jews that have come to know Christ as their Savior. Joel Rosenberg, if you haven't read his stuff, he's got a lot of amazing things that he has written. And he's a born-again Jew, and he's living in Israel currently with, with his, his family. There's always been a remnant. There's always been those amongst the children of Israel that have known God and stayed true uh, to the Lord. In verse 28, For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. This, this promise that God will be merciful and come back and set things right. And Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Shabbath had left us a seed, we should have become like Sodom and we should have become like Gomorrah. Shabbath sounds like Sabbath, but it's a different word. It actually means host. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a seed. Unless God had left this remnant, we would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. God's been faithful to keep that remnant in Israel Keep that salt and light in Israel so they don't completely become like Sodom and Gomorrah. And we pray that for the United States of America. Obviously, the United States of America is not Israel. But may God be gracious to leave a remnant of people in the United States so that we don't completely become like Sodom and Gomorrah. So that we don't completely become like the wicked and depraved cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Two cities that God destroyed in the book of Genesis. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith? Yes. The Gentiles in the book of Acts, pagan people groups that weren't seeking to be right with God, were not trying to approach God through the law. The gospel came to them and they trusted the gospel and righteousness came by faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. So here, Israel's trying to be righteous according to the law. Why? Because they didn't seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone. Again, quoting Isaiah, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So Israel, as we look at Israel's past, they stumbled at the cornerstone, which is Jesus. This cornerstone speaks of Christ. The cornerstone would be the most important stone in building the temple. This speaks of Jesus. And the nation of Israel largely stumbled at Jesus because it was a gospel of grace that they couldn't earn or deserve through the law. Isn't it hard to receive a gift? You know, what if someone comes up to you and, and just says, hey, can, can I buy you lunch? Or you're getting together with a friend and you're arguing over who's going to pay for lunch. And they're really insisting on buying you lunch. And you're like, no, you're not. You're not buying me lunch. It's hard to be able to 
receive a gift. And that's where Israel stumbled. They stumbled at Jesus. They stumbled at grace. No, I have to earn it. I have to deserve it. But stay tuned as we study chapter 10 and study chapter 11. Even though Israel stumbled at Jesus, God has continued to be faithful to the nation of Israel. I know this chapter is a lot to take in. This is a lot here. And I would encourage you to read through it on your own and just wrestle with it. Wrestle with it. Okay, there's some things that God's saying here that are hard. They're hard to understand. And why would God love Jacob and and hate Esau? Why would God choose Isaac and, and not Ishmael? And God's really clearly saying in his word, well, don't I have the right to choose? I'm the potter, you're the clay, and we wrestle with these truths But I hope as we wrestle with these truths, we'll come to this overwhelming sense of comfort of, God, what I really can't understand is why you've chosen me and why you've chosen to bestow upon me your unconditional love. And it affirms in our hearts, it takes us to a deeper level that nothing can separate me from the love of God because he's chosen it. He's chosen it by his grace. And you may be wondering, well, am I chosen? Am I elected by God? Well, this comes back to free will. God gives you the opportunity to believe and be saved. And he's made it very clear in his word that he gives that opportunity to everyone. He died for the sins of the whole world. And tonight, you can choose to turn from sin, trust Jesus, believe the gospel. Jesus, I believe you died for me and rose again. Invite him to be the Lord of your life and and he'll save you. And you'll come to find that you were chosen by God. He gave that love for you. Here's the lesson for us tonight. Is God remains faithful even when we're faithful, faithless. Isn't that good news? He remains faithful even when we're faithless. So let's stand together and let's pray. Father, your truth blows our minds. There's a lot here for us to try to unpack. We don't understand your choosing, but we see from your word that you have the right, the position, the authority to to choose. And we do thank you that you are in control, that you're the potter and we're the clay. And we want to surrender to your work in our lives. Father, we we surrender afresh. I surrender afresh tonight. I don't want to fight your hand in my life as the potter. I know know that you're good. And I'm thankful that your love that you've given to me is a choice that you made. Not based on me earning it or deserving it. So we find comfort and confidence in in your love. Just pray for protection from the enemy. Sometimes when we study passages like this, he can really try to come after us with doubts. And Lord, would you protect our minds and but also allow us to go deeper in our relationship with you where where we do have questions and where, where we are wrestling. Father, we just cry out to you afresh tonight. We need you. We need you. 
in our hearts, in our lives, in our families, in our church, in Colorado Springs, in this nation. We need you. Would you be gracious to us? Would you be merciful to us? In Jesus' name, amen.